There are a number of accounts in antiquity of the discovery of the irrational. But it's striking that, that, that these accounts all lead back in different ways to Pythagoreans. In fact, there are two accounts. In both accounts, there's a Pythagorean who is punished for having done something terrible. He's banished from the community of Pythagoreans. People erect a tomb for him as if he were dead, although he's alive. Or he's drowned at sea, either by human beings or by the gods, for having done something truly impious. So the question is, what's the impious act he did? According to one theory, he discovered the irrational. That is, he discovered that in nature, there are things that are absolutely disproportionate. Things you cannot compare by means of a number. According to the other theory, the crime was divulging the irrational, the disharmony of the world. Not so much recognizing that there was a disharmony in the world, but making it known that there were things in nature which were absolutely disharmonious. There seems to be a strong current in ancient thought. In fact, there, there are texts that say this explicitly, that if you discover something disharmonious in nature, it's better not to tell anyone. We mostly know Pythagoras through the cult that he founded, a cult dedicated to the secret harmonies and proportions of everything. But for the philosopher Daniel Heller Rosen, Pythagoras was one of the first thinkers who came face to face with the disharmony of the universe. And this encounter took place because Pythagoras was first and foremost obsessed with sound. He wanted to understand the nature of sounds, and he wanted to, to, in order to understand their nature, he wanted to understand what was eternally true about the nature of sounds. But there was a problem. Pythagoras wasn't getting anywhere with his research. And so one day, he stormed out of his workshop and went on a walk. And this is where the story begins for Daniel Heller Rosen. In fact, this is how his book, The Fifth Hammer, starts off. Pythagoras walks by a forge, and then something catches his ear. Within the forge comes a wonderful sound. Pythagoras goes in to investigate, and he walks in and sees five smiths hammering. First he thinks that the beautiful sound has to do with the force with which each man is hammering. So he makes them exchange their hammers, and the sound remains. Then he concludes that the sound, the harmony which he's heard, isn't in the men or in their muscles, it's in the instruments. The instruments all have very specific weights. He measures the weights of the instruments and he discovers that four of the five hammers are in a marvelous set of proportions. One measures 12, one measures 9, one measures 8, one measures 6. But there was also a fifth hammer, which is inconsonant with everything, discordant with all the others. So he throws it away. And that's when he goes home and begins all of his calculations, which will lead to the first sketch of harmony as we know it. The first idea that sounds can be reasoned by numbers. said more than once that the real founder of philosophy, the first philosopher, was Pythagoras. And I think he says this because Kant accords a great deal of importance to something which clearly interested the Pythagoreans, and that is the harmony of nature. And Kant, too, believed that it was essential that philosophy be able to account for the harmony of nature, that philosophy allow for the possibility of a scientific knowledge of the universe. Kant means that his project is Pythagoras' project. In fact, that every philosopher's project is Pythagoras' project. That everyone since Pythagoras who has practiced philosophy has been trying to understand the harmony of nature. That is to say, everyone who's been practicing philosophy since the beginning has been running into the problem of the disharmony of the world. Kant is no exception. In his book, The Critique of Judgment, the philosopher Immanuel Kant attempts to account for the nature of the universe and order of all things. But for Daniel Heller-Rosen, this is not what connects Kant with Pythagoras. 
Rather, it is Kant's refusal to acknowledge even the possibility of the irrational or the disharmonious. Kant says that science demands that we be able to think of nature as a totality. That is to say, you begin classifying, say you're working as a botanist or as a biologist, you begin classifying species and genera and ordering various phenomena you find in nature. It's a presupposition from the beginning that you think as you order nature that you'll be able to classify lesser species under higher genera, that these various things will form a kind of system. You don't know this, but you take for granted, you take it as axiomatic that the various things you're discovering will somehow be such that you can set them into a whole system. It could be, however, that this is simply not the case. It could be that nature is utterly chaotic, that you find one example of one thing, another example of something else. They're utterly heterogeneous. There's no law that subsumes them. There's no concept which can grasp them. There's no higher genus in which you can set your various species. This is an intrinsic possibility in any scientific exploration. It's the possibility of disharmony, that nature is simply such that it cannot be cognized as a totality. Kant sees this and he retreats from it. Kant perceives the possibility of a disharmony of nature and he turns his back on it. And in retreating from it, he repeats Pythagoras' gesture. Kant discovers something very um, uh, quite remarkable in this book, The Critique of Judgment, and it's something that involves the notion of infinity. Kant suggests that if you are dealing with numbers or mathematical sizes in science, you can always go from one magnitude, from one size to a larger size, and you can keep going. You can do the easiest things with numbers, one, two, three. You can always imagine a bigger number. There's no problem there. It goes on to infinity. But he suggests that when you're perceiving something and you begin perceiving things which are progressively larger, there's a certain point at which you reach a limit. You simply can't take in something beyond a certain limit. So his example is St. Peter's at the Vatican or the Egyptian pyramids. You look at a part, you look at a bigger part, you look at a bigger part, you try and take the whole thing in, and you can't. You can apprehend the part and another part, but you can't comprehend them all in a single instant. But our reason demands that we comprehend it in a single instant. And according to Kant, we have a sort of impelled to try and comprehend even an infinity within a single instant. We fail. We fail to do it in sensation. And yet in the moment in which you fail to do this, Kant says, this experience triggers in us a sense of something which is truly infinite and which is not in nature but which is in us. And that's the will, the freedom of the will. And so the moment of failure before the immensity of nature or the immensity of a human construction like a pyramid, in that moment of failure, we hear the voice of reason, which calls us to an infinity which we can think, which nothing hinders. A couple of weeks ago, I got a Facebook request from an old girlfriend who wrote how thrilled she was to have finally found me. She's now living in Seattle. She's married to a successful trial lawyer. She has two gifted and talented children. She's the director of a world-famous medical research center. She lives in a giant house on the ocean. She has an estate in Spain. And she looks like she hasn't aged a day since she dumped me 13 years ago. Obviously, she's fabulously wealthy, or at least able to afford a good plastic surgeon. Well, I made a mistake in accepting her friend request, because every night she sends me a stream of inappropriate messages. A few nights ago, she wrote to tell me how she'd spent an hour perusing my profile and my wall, and how proud she is of me. It's so great you stuck with the bohemian thing, she wrote. And it's so great to see you're still doing your important volunteer radio work. It's only been a few weeks and she's already acting like she's my life coach. 
last night she sent me a message telling me to keep posting updates about my podcast, even though it's obvious that all of my friends could care less about it. You have to get them to unblock you, she wrote. She also repeatedly tells me that I must remind myself every day how lucky I am that I get to devote myself to creative pursuits. Why, if you only knew about some of the things I have to do at my world-famous medical center, she wrote, you would die. It's totally soul-crushing. And here she inserted 12 extra U's into crushing to better make her point. I almost responded to that one. I wanted to remind her that she had already taught me everything I could possibly learn about soul crushing when she left me. But I didn't. I get the sense she's long forgotten that she once broke my heart. She has not forgotten, however, the circumstances under which we met. In fact, she's brought this up in a number of her messages. These are the really inappropriate ones, most likely written after a few glasses of wine. All her spelling is slurred, but the meaning is clear. She wants me to know that she still fantasizes about that time I climbed out of the MRI machine and took off my flashing goggles and kissed her. When I was 26, I was supporting myself through medical testing. This was back when the economy was booming and many of the research facilities in the Boston area were flush. I cashed in by subjecting myself to science. I was the subject for a countless number of eating, sleeping, physical exertion, blood, tissue, organ, and brain studies. But my favorite was the cocaine study I did every month at McLean's Hospital. Once a month, they'd send a cab to fetch me from my unheated basement apartment, and when I arrived at the hospital, they'd shoot me full of cocaine. Then they'd strap on these flashing goggles to my face and dump me into an MRI machine. She was one of the graduate assistants working for the doctor who ran the study. She was gorgeous. And one day, perhaps overstimulated, I climbed out of the MRI machine and kissed her. We saw each other for about six months. She was amazing. Whenever she had time for a study break, she would call me up and I would rush over on my bicycle. She was independent and caught up in her own work. I thought we were perfect for each other. But when she finished medical school, she dumped me. She told me that while I was the perfect boyfriend for a girl in grad school, I just wasn't suitable for real life. This blast from the past did get me thinking, though. Perhaps I could get back into medical testing. I am, after all, indigent. And now that my body's falling apart, I should qualify for all sorts of studies. Perhaps I might even... Well, on Craigslist, mixed in with the missed connections and the casual encounters, there are, it turns out, tons of medical testing opportunities. And many of them look quite lucrative. But yesterday morning, I found one that took my breath away. It went like this. Have you ever wondered about that voice in your head? Have you ever wondered what you really sound like? A renowned scientist is launching a study to isolate and record the inner voice. And you have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to participate. If you're willing to undergo a minor brain operation and are free to spend two weeks in our lab, then this study is for you. Compensation generous. I immediately replied to the email and the ad expressing my interest. And within five minutes, I got a reply asking if I was available to meet at noon outside the Dunkin' Donuts slash Baskin Robbins on First Avenue near the NYU Medical School. When I showed up at the Dunkin' Donuts slash Baskin Robbins, there was a man outside leaning up against the building. He was wearing a lab coat, but he didn't look like a scientist or a doctor. He looked more like a hospital security guard. 
but when I flashed him a quizzical expression, he sprang to attention. Look at all these people with their phones and their pods and their pads, he said, waving his hand at the throngs of white earbudded people walking by. And not a single one of them could tell us, if we asked, why they do it, why they drown out the sound of their true selves with audio sewage. As he was saying this, I discreetly tried to ball up the iPhone headphones I had in my left hand. But before I could finish, he snatched them away and flung them into the air. And then, with lightning reflexes, using only his thumb and forefinger, he plucked the eighth-inch jack out of the air and held it up in front of my face. Would it not be great, he said, if you could plug this into your head? His name was Dr. Steele. Well, that's how he introduced himself to me. Dr. Steele, the world's greatest authority on the inner voice of man. The inner voice, he said, has always been linked to the self. Most people, in fact, believe that the inner voice is the actual I talking, like in a first-person narrative. But until now, science has only been able to study second-hand accounts of our inner voice. Research subjects can only report on what they hear after they've heard it. There's still a filter, an interface. But that, he said, is now going to change. Because I have figured out a way to wire up the brain for sound. And if you're lucky enough to participate in my revolutionary groundbreaking study, I will drill a hole in your head. At this point, his assistant comes barging out of the Dunkin' Donuts slash Baskin Robbins. She's carrying a clipboard. She's not really that attractive. But she does present me with a contract that says, I will receive $10,000 if the experiment is successful. But what happens if it's not, I ask. Well, the assistant replied sheepishly, then you'd be dead. But that's not going to happen, Dr. Steele said in a very reassuring tone. So reassuring, in fact, I signed the contract. Mitchell was 26 years old. She was working as a computer programmer at a dot-com and making a life for herself in Washington, D.C. She was an overachiever, like her friends, who were also working high-powered jobs. But, like most 26-year-olds, she was in a real period of transition. I was about to quit my job. I was about to switch cities. I had broken up with my boyfriend. I mean, it was just a big moment, but I was thinking about, you know, my purpose in life, as many 26-year-olds do. Um, and then I had to stop, you know. My mind went pop. Nina had a stroke. Blood just suddenly started leaking into her brain, without warning, with no known cause. Up until 1970, strokes were known as cerebrovascular accidents, a medicalized whoops moment in the brain. Today, we still don't really know why they happen, especially in young people, which is the fastest-growing segment of stroke sufferers. Nina's stroke caused significant speech problems and motor damage to the right side of her body. To fix this damage, she does hours and hours of repetitious activity to rebuild the broken pathways in her brain and to repair her body. But physical symptoms, Nina said, that she could see herself were less disturbing to her than cognitive changes that she couldn't quite track in her own mind. It's very disturbing 
to suddenly find out that you are not quite the way you were. To get acquainted with her new self, Nina had to rely on the opinions of her friends and family around her to tell her how she used to be. I was told to go out and interview my old friends who had seen me before my stroke as well as after and to ask them what was different about me. And they told me little things. For example, um, I was kind of rude to waiters um, and before I was the master of etiquette. So um, all of a sudden I was different and acting different and I didn't realize that. One of the speech therapists saw me waiting online at the waiting room for my outpatient meeting and he was like he made a big a circle and with his fingers like like a good job excellent and afterwards I asked him why he had done that and he said oh you waited in line and apparently I had not been doing that very well early on when I had gone to see him and I would barge in if I had something to ask him and that was very disturbing right because like to what extent is your manners disturbed by this? After almost two years in her parents' home, Nina moved out on her own again, where she started up the plans she had to stop before the stroke. She decided to start a blog about learning to live with her new mind after her old one went pop. Nina posts short, pithy stories with Creative Commons images on her blog, mindpop.net. These stories read more like the adventures of a young woman who just happens to be a stroke survivor. Like this short story from her blog. I was cooking something that required some wine and I was in my apartment and I realized that I just couldn't open this bottle of wine. And in all these situations, you just, especially if you're disabled, there's a point where you're like, all right, I'm going to have to go and make that clear to someone and just ask them for this this thing. Um, so I went down to a cafe nearby and I just handed them a, my bottle. And I was like, can you open this wine? And he's like, well, yeah, but I'm not 21 yet. So I can't really open this wine. <laughs> so, but he's like, but, but I could get my boss. So then he brings down his boss and she, uh, she opens my wine and I say, thank you. And then I asked the two of them, it's the weirdest thing that someone has ever asked you and they're like no not at all there's this one guy who came in and asked us to change the sun a lot of the stories on mindpop.net are told from a perspective that a healthy person wouldn't have like scenes from inside the rehabilitation hospital for example there are also just stories of someone who's young and making sense of their life and the people who fit into it. I went on crazy dates with people. I mean, I just, you know, what do you do when you're 26 and you don't have too much to do except go to rehab? I mean, you know. Well, I had a friend and we met in Chinatown downtown and he was gonna drive me home, but then his car broke down. And so I was like, okay, I'm just gonna get on this bus. I began to see that most of the people on the bus had mohawks, and they kept getting more and more mohawks getting on this bus. And I was like, why are there so many mohawks on the bus? And so finally I asked somebody, like, why are there so many? <laughs> why are there so many mohawks on this bus? And he's like, because it's a concert. When Nina began posting these stories almost daily, the audience responded. Nina gets letters from all over the world now, from stroke survivors, and from people who haven't had strokes. When you're 26, you're having all these 26-year-old adventures, you know? You're trying to find your partner or whatever. Um, and to have that with the stroke at the same time is very disturbing and exciting and weird. And so it makes for lots of adventures that an average person probably wouldn't have but could relate to. Your mind is a malleable mass of tissue that, to add another layer of mystery, determines the entirety of your perception. Your brain develops naturally with age and experience, or more suddenly with a traumatic brain injury. MindPop.net chronicles more than just the story of a stroke survivor. It also tells the story of a young woman trying to be sure of herself, a self she doesn't quite have a handle on anymore. My mind sort of disappeared for a while. And when it came back, it wasn't the same. I mean, everyone changes over time. 
But to have it suddenly change, I think, is what is most disturbing. Personality is not permanent. And that is a very scary thing. I think in in looking at history and human experience and human rights crimes, we tend to look at discrete periods, like a particular date was Kristallnacht or a particular date was a slaughter somewhere, something happened and it can be pinned down. But then that's discrete and it's over and it's done with. And trauma just fundamentally doesn't work that way. It has these long strings that carry almost like a violin that will carry a vibration and broadcast it far down along the line of time. Before she was an artist, Quentin Anna Wixo was a human rights worker. For years, she took down the stories of Holocaust survivors. But then, one day she decided to start making art about the Jewish historical experience in Europe. One of the first sites she visited was Lisbon, where, in the 1600s, the Inquisition had burned most of its Jewish population. What was so beautiful about working in Portugal was was seeing these tangible traces from lives that were still very much there. Walking through the Jewish ghetto and being able to see little holes from mezuzah and then realizing they'd been wrenched out. And that's, you can, you can feel the hand, you can hear the nail, you can see the wound in the wood and and sometimes on some of the interior doors, you could actually see where the, had been, the paint was different or the light hadn't bleached where the box had been. And suddenly those, that time vanishes. Like that, that space that we like to believe exists between us and the past just isn't there. It's completely an illusion. The photographs Wixo creates are extremely layered. Images are stacked on top of images. And in some cases, you really do get a sense that you are looking at time. It was also in Portugal where Wisco first encountered the type of camera she now uses exclusively in her work. I was walking through Lisbon and found an old camera store and there were all these beautiful cameras that were expensive, nice, well taken care of, handy, fancy cameras. And I was drawn to this sad little broken, messed up, shattered and, and dirty, rusty camera. And you know, I immediately felt sorry for the camera, in a sense. Um, and I started asking the fellow about it, and he says, oh, you don't want that, that's a nasty camera. The camera shop owner called the Altissa Wixo held in her hand a nasty camera because the Altissa was the camera the Nazis used in World War II to document the atrocities they carried out both on the battlefield and in the concentration camps. But Wixo decided she had to have it. And so she bought it. You can see it's, it's quite damaged. You know, it's chipped and falling apart, and if you shake it, everything makes noise that it shouldn't make. Usually you don't want noisy cameras that don't properly close. And there's rust on, on parts that shouldn't have rust. But for Wixo, the real nastiness of this camera, and the other 45 like it she has in her collection, lies in their fabrication. She believes most of them were made by slave labor. The Altissa itself came from a factory nearby Dachau. This was manufactured by um, the women at Dachau uh, who were enslaved in the Agfa camera factory. Several different people in Munich told me that, and I see no reason why it couldn't be true. there was a train that came from Ravensbrück um, that had about 250 women on it, and they were to be assigned to this brothel that was being opened by the SS, um, a rape brothel. And a lot of them were women who had been um, 
not exactly like accused of being lesbians, but they were to be re-educated in heterosexuality and this demented policy that was behind a lot of the, the concentration camp rape brothels. And when they got to Dachau, they were separated, and the ones who were considered pretty were, went, were sent to the brothel, and the ones that were considered less pretty went to make the cameras. I mean, it must have been excruciating for these women to know what had happened to the others. They're sitting there in factories making cameras that are going to go document what they're fully aware of as one of the worst crimes against humanity that's ever been perpetrated, and they have to sit there and make these propaganda devices that, as far as they're concerned, are advancing the purpose of the war, advancing the purpose of this dictatorship. I wanted to take this camera, of all cameras, back to Dachau when I documented the women who were in the four sex brothels. Wixo says she learned about the forced sex brothels from one of the Holocaust survivors she interviewed. She said it was the story that motivated her to quit her job and start making art. I was not aware of the extent to which this had happened, and um, there are still... Um, I don't know how to say it... Um, we think that years and years have passed and that we know what there is to know and that this was something that was very sad and the Jewish experience that was in Europe was very sad. But to me, it felt like there's still a lot that isn't talked about. It's like the idea of something still being unspeakable. When Wixo arrived at Dachau to photograph the site of the sex brothel, she discovered that it was not on the official map, nor was it a subject anyone cared to talk about. You know, I go to the camp administration, like, where's, where, why isn't this on the map? Like, it's, it makes people too uncomfortable. Like, really, we're at a concentration camp, and it makes people too uncomfortable. So I start spending days and days and days at Dachau in this corner, which is a fairly large corner of the camp. There's nothing there except this field of dandelions and these, this ring of um, violets. And everyone's looking at me like I'm crazy because they've got their walking map and they're going to the crematorium and they're going to the ash pile and they're going to the execution wall and they're going to the blood drainage ditch. And all those things are very clearly marked because apparently they can be talked about. And people would come up and say, why are you standing there? Why are you on your hands and knees with these bizarre cameras of the dandelion shoved up the lens? I'm like, well, I guess I'll be the only person standing here for two weeks talking about the fact that this is where a lot of women lost their lives and had, had absolutely excruciating experiences, but it's not on a map. Wixo spent two weeks in Dachau photographing the flowers that now grow where hundreds of Jewish women were repeatedly raped and brutalized. And she says she brought with her the women who were sent the camera factories. The whole time I was sitting there in the camps with these cameras, I was just like, okay, I've, you know, f you. You know, f you. You can't, you know, you may, you have to wait a long, you know, it may take a long time for the, for, for the justice to be done, and it's never fully justice, but it felt like it's what those women would have maybe wanted or hoped for or thought about while they were while they were in the factory. The images that Wisco took at Dachau convey a strange sense of redemption and solace. And she says this is because of the camera. This camera has an eye, and the eyes were trained on terrible things. And if, as a life of a camera, to be forced to show something in a way that is not kind or good. Maybe they also should have a second opportunity to go back and share the stories of the people that they were initially documenting their murder. I think there's a burden that was carried by these objects. And to some extent, the burden of guilt or complicity or unfinished business is a little balanced out now. Um, 
that they've performed a duty, but it's been for the other side. There's a whole universe in every single object that becomes even bigger when put in relationship with a person. Even furniture designers need to understand that a chair might need to have some kind of conversation with people. Paola Antonelli is a senior curator in the Department of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Modern Art. Her latest blockbuster show, Talk to Me, explores the communication between people and objects. The show is jam-packed with devices, tools, machines, art installations, advertising products. There's even furniture. There's a, a piece that's called a crooning chair, and it's this uh, chair that sounds a little bit like Steve Martin and uh, sings, you know, with big lips. With all its blinking lights and moving parts, Talk To Me definitely feels like a showroom of the future. But Paola Antonelli wants us to understand that there is more to cutting-edge communication design than apps and widgets. It's important to understand that when we talk about the interface between people and technology or the communication between people and objects, we're not talking about the latest touchscreen or the latest tablet, computer, not at all. Sometimes it's very low-tech. I mean, there's a piece in the show that's about the map of Berlin that is done by using a perfume industry technology called headspace that is normally used on gardenias to to acquire and capture their scent without killing the flower. Here it's used for different parts of Berlin. So you have these ampoules on the map of Berlin and you know I, I'm not letting people you know, really smell them but it's better than Chinatown in the summer and it's like it gives you an idea of different parts of Berlin. If you don't make it to the show before it closes on November 7th, you can get a sense of just how many different technologies are on display by visiting the Talk To Me website. Plus, you can read Paula Antonelli's essay about the interface, which, for her, enables us to do much more than merely communicate with machines. You know, the human-computer interface is just one of the interfaces that we're tackling with this show, and in a way... It's the least present in the show. There's one, uh, there's one video that I love by Multimedia Barcelona, which is the high, the real human interface that shows this guy that is inside the box. He's the computer, so he wakes up in the morning and you have to wake it, wake it up, and then it gives you the emails. It's really lovely. I cannot, I cannot really narrate it on a radio program. You have to go and see it. Really great. But then what I really love are the other interfaces. Like my, I shouldn't say it's, Okay, don't tell anybody. It's my favorite piece in the show. <laughs> don't tell anybody. It's the menstruation machine by Sputnik. Sputnik with the exclamation mark. And in that particular case, the interface is not between man and machine. It's between man and woman, right? So it's a contraption that looks like a chastity belt that uh, it's for men, but also for menopausal women. At it, and it really gives you the feeling of a menstruation. It has electrodes that stimulate your lower abdomen and they give you cramps. And then it has a reservoir in the back. You're supposed to draw your blood, put it in there. And then you have your blood drip exactly where it should. So it's the whole shebang. And to me, it's the ultimate gesture of understanding. And that's what I really love, that interface, not the human-machine interface. The human-machine interface, you know what? We are all doing engineers, designers, scientists, we're all trying to make technology disappear. That's the truth. QR tags that are so used in the show because they're necessary will disappear. 
Hopefully, also for augmented reality, we will not need to have the iPhone in front of us. If there will be another way, that will be more transparent. Just like we go through the toll booths in freeways using EasyPass, and we still have that box, but we don't think about it, that's how life should be so that we can focus on real human habits and human needs as opposed to focusing on the technology. Interface really is one of the uh, focal points of the way we live today and the way culture moves today. And when you say interface, you can take out the face and put section. You can take out section and put relations. You know, I'm going to sound a little Euro trashy or my big fat Greek wedding, but it's about understanding each other, having these crossroads and choosing the path or asking for directions and trying to understand where you're going. So even though I'm, I'm being a little corny here, I do believe that one of the engines of today's world is curiosity, curiosity for others. Of course, there are other engines that are much more tragic and much more impellent, and I don't mean to diminish them by talking about, oh, curiosity, but um, curiosity is heightened by the availability of information and at the same time is hampered by the availability of information. So I feel that true experiences of otherness, of understanding others, are, what are the ones that count. That's why interfaces, really effective ones, are hard to find and are precious. I can't recall what happened after I signed the contract to participate in Dr. Steele's medical experiment. I do remember crossing First Avenue with Dr. Steele and his assistant, but then everything fades to black. When I came to, I was in the front seat of a van, and there was a woman, a police officer, holding an ice pack to my head. Across the street, the neon Dunkin' Donuts slash Baskin Robbins sign pulsated in the early evening twilight. Then, I caught sight of Dr. Steele and his assistant. They were being shoved into a police car. They were both wearing handcuffs. What's going on, I asked the policewoman. Rogue science, she replied. Apparently, Dr. Steele isn't a real scientist. His experiments are unethical and illegal. The authorities have had him under surveillance for months now. And just as he began operating on me in the back of his mobile van lab, a SWAT team descended upon him. You are lucky we showed up when we did, the policewoman said. There's no telling what he would have done to you. I wanted to give her a kiss to show her how grateful I was, but my head was throbbing. I could barely move. Eventually, they put me in a cab, and when I got to my apartment, I crawled into my bed and fell into a deep, deep sleep. When I woke up this morning, I discovered to my astonishment that there is now a hole in my head on my right temple. That quack doctor drilled an eighth-inch audio jack into my brain. So I've decided that we are going to test this thing out together. I've brought with me a mini-to-mini cable here to the studio tonight, and we are going to plug my head directly into the board and see if this works. So when I pull this fader up, we should hear my inner voice. Is this thing on? Is that thing on? <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hi. No, no, no. I do not sound like that. I don't know who you are, but this is how I sound. I must have like a loose connection. <laughs> that tickles. <laughs> that tickles. Who are you? We are the, the same, same person. person. Wait, there's two of you? Actually, I should say hi, too. We're, we're like, like a, a big, big gang. gang. Don't you wish you were cool enough to be in the gang? He's not welcome. Definitely not. Ho hold on a second. What's with the hostility? 
This is like a momentous occasion, and you guys are being dicks. We just don't like you. Who are you? I told you, we're a gang. How many of you are there? We are Legion. Unbelievable. Are you stupid? Do you guys really need to do this? This is humiliating. You guys are humiliating me on my own radio show. I can't believe it. I'm gonna have to grow out my sideburns or something. Well, one thing's for sure. This is the last we'll be hearing of you. The history of ideas is filled with philosophers and mathematicians who've claimed to be disciples and descendants of Pythagoras. But in the 16th century, the German scientist Johannes Kepler claimed he was Pythagoras. Kepler suggested that it was entirely possible that long after dying, Pythagoras's soul migrated into another body. In fact, it was possible that Pythagoras's soul had migrated into the body of a German astronomer and metaphysician, that is to say, Johannes Kepler himself. Kepler believed, or suggests, perhaps in part in jest, but not entirely, I think, that he, Kepler, was the reincarnation of Pythagoras. Now, Kepler made this ridiculous claim only once, in a letter. But for Daniel Heller-Rosen, Kepler is the man who makes the greatest attempt to complete Pythagoras' project, unlocking the harmonies of the universe. At many points, he makes it clear that his project, as he understands it, is Pythagoras's, And so he has no qualms about pointing out where Pythagoras went wrong. Kepler believes that um, Pythagoras and his disciples didn't trust their ears enough. He thinks that early on, the Pythagoreans put their faith in calculations rather than in perceptions. If the ancient Pythagoreans had trusted more in their own hearing, then they would have been led to the principles of modern music. That's what Kepler thinks. And Kepler believes that he, the first successful Pythagorean, can demonstrate that all of nature has been ordered in accordance with the principle of harmony, which is to say also with the laws of music. And he shows this in his last major work of scientific innovation, which is a book called The Harmony of the World. This is the work in which Kepler formulates for the first time his laws of planetary motion. In the discussion of the laws of planetary motion, it's quite clear that Kepler believes that when he discovers physical regularities in the universe, when he discovers the path that each planet takes, how it accelerates and decelerates depending on its distance from the sun, when he discovers these principles, Kepler believes he is discovering the harmony of the universe. He's discovering that the planets have been set where they are and move in different speeds because the planets are executing a kind of astronomical harmony. In fact, in, in a certain sense, they are truly executing a kind of harmony because Kepler's book aims to show that the relations between the planet's speeds are harmonic in nature. And what Kepler does is he takes his astronomical findings, which he made starting when he was in his youth, when he was the assistant to the great astronomer of the time, Tycho Brahe. Um, he takes all of his measurements and he tries to show that they lead to a single consequence, and that is that the various planets in our solar system are playing a music. They're playing a divine music, which is comprehensible only from the center of the universe, which is to say only from the sun. In Kepler's vision of the universe, God is the sun. And around him, all the planets are moving at different speeds, and they're producing harmonies, proportions, which are pleasing in kind. Kepler, who was in a way, he's the figure who in the scientific revolution, you could say, it has been said, Kepler went further than anyone in imagining the physical structure of the universe. But he did so in order to fulfill the dream of Pythagoras. He did so because Kepler was a figure with one foot in the ancient world and one foot in the modern world. 
He discovered the laws of planetary motion because he was trying to solve Pythagoras's project. And yet, in conceiving of the laws of the modern universe, you could say that Kepler believes that he can solve the riddle of the fifth hammer. But Kepler runs into a disharmony which is unavoidable. He ran into the problem of the infinite universe. Kepler believed all the planets move around the sun because he was a Copernican. He believed the sun was the center of the universe. But Kepler was aware that this claim could be questioned. As soon as Copernicus suggested that the center of the universe was not the earth, but the sun, people immediately started wondering, if the sun is the center of the universe, where are the edges of the universe? Aristotle had an explanation to the question. Aristotle believed he could show that there was a center of the universe and there was a limit to the universe. There was a center and there was an edge. But many people in the 16th century, when Kepler was writing, began to doubt that the universe might have an edge. They began to suggest that the universe might go on forever. In other words, many people in Kepler's time suggested that the universe was infinite. And so Kepler was led to confront the problem of an infinite universe. If the universe is infinite, Kepler realized this right away. If the universe is infinite, it doesn't have a center. The center is anywhere and everywhere. If the universe is infinite and there's no center, then why observe the planets from the point of view of the sun? You could just as well observe them from another point of view. And if you do, the harmony vanishes. And in conceiving of this possibility, albeit in horror, Kepler throws away the fifth hammer. He sees the fifth hammer. The fifth hammer is the possibility of an unlimited universe, a universe with no order. He sees this possibility, and he too, like Kant, like Pythagoras, retreats from it. He retreats from it in his own way, and that is by insisting that the universe be finite and that it have a center. Because if the universe is infinite, then it has no order. It has no harmony. It's chaos. This episode of Too Much Information is called Guided by Voices. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen, Laura Mayer, and Sylvie Kovnat. It featured Daniel Heller-Rosen, Nina Mitchell, Quentin Anna Wixo, and Paola Antonelli. Quentin Anawixo's work is on display at the Yeshiva Art Museum in Manhattan through January, while MoMA's Talk to Me exhibit closes on November 7th. You can find Nina Mitchell's work at mindpop.net, and Daniel Heller Rosen's new book, The Fifth Hammer, has just been released by Zone Books. There's links to all that and more on the TMI playlist page at wfmu.org. And that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast. And make sure you donate to the WFMU silent fundraiser. October is almost over. Join us at the same time next week for another edition of Too Much Information. You're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WFMU.org. Up now, For the Record, with Dave Emery. Hello, my name's Dave Emery, and this is side one of For the Record program number 331, titled Connecting the Dots, Part 5, subtitled Walk in the Snake. 
Veteran listeners will recognize the title as an allusion to the Nazi tract Serpent's Walk, published by the National Vanguard Books, the publishing arm of America's largest uh, Nazi group, the National Alliance. Time uh, permitting, I will give more uh, details about that in the past. Uh, this is yet another broadcast dealing with the momentous and horrible events of September 11th of 2001. Let me stress that due not only to the complexity of the events, but the limitations of time, uh, necessarily some of the dots that I am connecting here might not appear to the relatively new or uninitiated listener to be as connected as uh, they actually are. That is not meant to be condescending, but simply due to the scope of the event and the limitations of time, uh, I will not be able to uh, give all of the ancillary discussion that uh, might be required, so I want to emphatically refer listeners to other broadcasts dealing with September 11th. They are available from a CD and tape duplication service called Spitfire. Time permitting, I will give you more information about that. And sister station WFMU-FM in Jersey City, New Jersey, is archiving the For the Record programs on real audio. More recent programs are streaming at WFMU.org front slash Dave Emery, D-A-V-E-E-M-O-R-Y. And older programs are available for download only on real audio. And a longer URL, which is linked not only to the other WFMU website that I just gave you, but also to the For the Record section of the Spitfire website at www.spitfirelist.com. We are going to continue from the discussion that we have had concerning the Saudi connection to the September 11th incidents. And let me stress that uh, in addition to the Wahhabi slash Saudi slash World Muslim Congress slash Afghan connection that we spoke about and the Islamo-fascist uh, dynamic that I spoke about, not to be misunderstood as equating Islam with fascism, far from it, but the Wahhabi sect uh, originating in Najd in Arabia, which was actually predicted by the Prophet Muhammad uh, to uh, have an area that was forecast by Muhammad himself to be an area of co a source of confusion and corruption. Uh, the Wahhabi sect is Islamo-fascist and has strong historical links with international fascism, including the Borman Group, the House of Saud, married in turn into the Bin Laden family, and the Bush family. And those connections are dealt with in numerous broadcasts about this subject and others. Uh, one of the very interesting aspects of the Saudi uh, connection to the events of September 11th is that not only have they not been cooperative, but there are indications that uh, they may have had forewarning. Uh, most newspapers in the United States have not carried this. However, the Financial Times of London, in their Wednesday, October 10th of 2001 edition, did carry this story. This is by Rula Khalaf in Riyadh. It's headlined, Saudis warned Bush over policy on Israel, and it reads in part as follows. Crown Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia told Washington ten days before the September 11th terror attacks that U.S. policy towards the Arab-Israeli conflict had become untenable. According to, to diplomatic sources in Riyadh, the prince's letter to President George W. Bush prompted U.S. reassurances that apparently led to U.S. backing for the establishment of a Palestinian state. The Riyadh sources said the letter was part of a dialogue started in the June meeting in Paris between Crown Prince Abdullah and Colin Powell, U.S. Secretary of State. The letter shows the world's largest oil exporter trying to influence U.S. policy on the Middle East conflict at a time when Arab public opinion and governments had become increasingly disillusioned by U.S. backing for Israel. This suggests that President Bush's statement last week supporting the idea of a Palestinian state was not directly tied to U.S. efforts to bring Arab nations into the coalition against terrorism. The Saudi message is believed to have indicated that U.S. bias toward Israel was making it impossible for the Saudi leadership to follow policies that were in both countries' interests. President Bush is said to have written back to reassure the Crown Prince that the message had found a listening ear. Well, in addition to many of the connections between uh, Wahhabism, the Saudi royal family, the Bin Laden family, and international fascism, and what I call the Underground Reich, I want to note that in For the Record Program 284, we noted that during the 2000 election campaign, the elder George Bush was in direct communication with Crown Prince Abdullah through the Carlyle Group, a uh, prestigious and a wealthy international investment firm funded in part 
by the Bin Laden family. I also noted in uh, For the Record program number uh, 308 that uh, the elder George Bush had actually called the Saudi royal family on behalf of his son and said, don't worry, the younger George Bush is going to do the right thing vis-a-vis the Arab-Israeli conflict. So note that 10 days before the September 11th terror attacks, uh, Crown Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia told Washington that uh, its stance on the Arab-Israeli conflict was untenable. More about the Saudi uh, connection to these events. The following is from the New York Times of Saturday, October 13th of 2001. This is an article by Jeff Gerth and Judith Miller of the New York Times. This is headlined, Philanthropist or Fount of Funds for Terrorists. And this concerns a wealthy Saudi named Yazin Al-Qadi, first last name A-L hyphen capital Q-A-D-I. And uh, this describes a charitable organization that is run by Mr. Yazin Al-Qadi called Muafak, not a name you want to mispronounce on the air. That's spelled capital M-U-W-A-F-A-Q. And it uh, has been alleged by the Bush administration that this